Welcome to The Hot Seat, a sheer therapy podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Pam, and I'll be joining you every week alongside my girls, Denise and Cousin Dan. Every episode, we'll be having real conversations, including the good, the bad, and yes, even the ugly. Although we are three women in different stages of our lives, one single, one married, and one divorced, we can still share our experiences together with love, faith, and a glass of wine in hand, of course. We know you're going to enjoy listening in and riding along this journey we call life with us together. Listen in as we talk, as we get real, and as we get raw. Here we are. Sheer Therapy. Okay, welcome back to another episode of The Hot Seat with Sheer Therapy. I'm Pam. I'm Den. And I'm Danielle. And today we're going to talk about being a boss babe, um, entrepreneurial life, all that stuff. And for once, I'm not going to do a lot of the questioning. So take it away, ladies. We're going to put you ladies in the hot seat today. So today we have an awesomely fantastic guest. We have Priscilla Facey. She is the ultimate. We're not even going to use that term but she's the ultimate entrepreneur anti-boss anti-boss babe we'll talk about we'll talk about as we go into the combo why she doesn't like that uh term and why it shouldn't be so um hashtagged like it is being used right now but um you know what we know you obviously but why don't you tell our listeners exactly who you are and how you got started in this industry And we just, before you get into that, we just want to kind of announce who you are quickly. Um, So Priscilla is the founder and CEO of Build Up Development Co. Um, And Priscilla, take it away. Who are you? (laughs) Who am I? Well, if we're going to quote Eckhart Tolle, I am the consciousness behind my mind. (laughs) Um, But yes, my name is Priscilla Facey. Yes, I am. Founder CEO of Build Up Development Co. I am a real estate developer. Um, what does that mean? I assemble and develop land and turn it into residential housing that I then uh, sell to individuals. And my real mission behind that is to help people to understand the need to purchase investment real estate, how it can dramatically change your life. Um, and, you know, I think that being in now, hopefully what is the tail end of this pandemic. I think everybody understands and realizes that we cannot rely on a nine to five. We need to set ourselves up. Um, We cannot rely on government. (laughs) We cannot rely on anything external outside of ourselves. We need multiple streams of income. And that is what the, um, that's my basis for my company is to really educate people and empower them to purchase investment real estate. And I guess to kind of be autonomous from the nine to five system. Is that, I mean, listen, if you're working a nine to five, you are, you're lining someone else's pockets. Right. And, and this is not to say that everyone um, wants or is even capable of being an entrepreneur. However, just understand that you're either having people work for you or you're going to work for somebody else. And it's, I think we're in the greatest time right now to be able to really 
unleash, you know, we're, we have so much access to so much information. The world is literally our oyster and with social media, there are so many opportunities to earn money outside of the confines of a nine to five. Um, I worked in government for many, many years. And I think at some point, just the energy of being in a cubicle, (laughs) Um, asking someone when I could go for lunch, asking if I could take vacation, how long, you know, getting shifts covered off, all of that stuff. At some point, it's just, I realized it was not for me. Um, And I had another avenue, another opportunity and something else that really just lit my fire. And so that's happening inside for probably a lot of us. And, you know, there's certain things that are holding people back from actually going out and and looking into what those opportunities are. And so I, I think that's something that should really be encouraged and flourished because in the era that we're in, we have more opportunity than any other human being before us. And so the time is now. And so looking ahead, um, when you were sitting in your cubicle, kind of looking to the future, how were you defining success for yourself? Like, what did that look like for you in order to kind of embark on that journey? I think for me, success meant freedom. So it wasn't a dollar amount per se. It still isn't a dollar amount, but it's what two things. It's what financial security can give me. So not worrying about expenses, having the ability to feel financially secure for myself, to make decisions, to invest. Um, And secondly, it's the freedom with my time, right? What most people are doing right now is they're exchanging their time for money. So if you work a job, then, you know, maybe you're paid $25 an hour. So you have to work for an hour. You have to give them your time. They will give you money. But when you are in your own business and successful one, and it will take some steps to get there, um, for some people it happens overnight, others not so much, but you own your own time. So you're not trading time for money. Your, your time almost becomes invaluable. And so that's really what defines success. Um, you know, when I was, I was working in human resources um, for, for the government, I did worked for the province for a while doing human rights investigations. Then I got back into HR, uh, human resources, handling labor disputes with the, um, with the feds. And I was in an office and the trouble with government culture is that it really encourages you to just move slow. It's not a fast paced environment at all. Anyone who's had even a five minute interaction with any government worker understands that. And I'm okay to call it out because I was a part of that culture for many years Um, But people are just not, they're not go-getters. They're not moving quickly. It's very slow. There's a bunch of red tape and it's just processes are not streamlined. It's a very frustrating place to work if you are a go-getter, if you are a hustler, if you want to see things move quickly and feel reward for that, right? So I'd work on cases and it would take years. Like literally the cases to go through the system would outlive my time in the role. (laughs) So, you know, I could bump into old government workers. Hey, whatever happened with the so-and-so case? Oh yeah, that's still going on. Okay. (laughs) Nine years later, it's still not resolved. Right. So things move very slowly. Um, And I, I knew once I got into real estate, it was just, it was very exciting for me. I was doing deals on my lunch. I was doing showings on lunch. It was just something that really unlocked um, the, the confines of cubicle life and of just government culture life. I, everyone knows, you know, if you work in government, 
you are going to get a pension after giving them 30 years minimum of your life. And that's not something that interested me at all. I saw the people at the other side of that who were three, four years away from this pension. And it's something that's very coveted. It is like a gold mine at the end of a rainbow. The trouble is once you get your pot of gold, there's no more rainbow. You have been sitting around for 30 years, sedentary type work. Often you have health problems. You know, the golden years are not ahead of you. They're probably actually were behind you. And that's it. You've given them all this time and, and you're going to get your measly four or $5,000 a month check. And you're probably old, tired, cranky from, you know, that whole life um, to now go off and travel and, you know, live the, the coveted dream that is the pension. So I knew that I wanted something different for myself. I didn't want to turn 60 or turn 55 and be, you know, have my retirement lunch and my collective gift from all the staff. Denise is laughing because I'm she's laughing gone because to honestly, all those lunches. Oh my God. I'm tired of them. I'm tired yeah. of them. It's like, they're just, they're just waiting. Like you see them just kicking it, like walking to the door with their cane. It's like your last your last few years and, and you get a like a retirement plaque and a watch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is it. I've given you guys 40 hours a week for 30 years. Yeah. So that was not for me. And well, I'm depressed about that now. <laughs> and you right, I'll go sit with that be. for a minute. But you know what? You've got great benefits when you leave the government. So there's plenty of money for therapy. <laughs> you do. You get your lifetime benefits that you got to, you got to pay a little bit of a higher premium, but there you go. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so, um, you know, long story short, I was in my office at my government job. I got a call. I purchased, um, I purchased a house quite young. I was 23. I took a look back then. You only needed $12,000 because home prices were almost nothing. And I 5% down, I bought a $250, uh, $250,000 townhouse in Mississauga. A couple of years later, I fell into a lot of student debt. I was only making 45 K at the government. So it was hard to keep up with all my bills at a bill collector. His name was John Bonavolta. I will never forget this man's name or the face <laughs> in his voice. Shout out to John Bonavolta. John Bonavolta. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's probably a stage name now they think about it because it sounded very, you know, Broadway, but um. Anyway, I was getting collection calls. I was behind in my student loan payments and I had $50,000 in equity in my house. So I sold the house, wiped out Bonavolta's debt and, um, and had enough money to buy a small condo downtown. I was walking to work. I was living the dream, you know, eight minute walk to work. I was living at Village by the Grange right across from OCAD. So I had the beautiful purple light of OCAD University shining into Good times window. at that place. Good we time. had a lot of great nights. <laughs> village by the grange um mccall street anyway so yeah so um i got a call when i was working my gov job and there was a leak in my condo um the unit above me pipe had burst anyway i damaged in my unit long story short the insurance company paid me out twelve thousand dollars which is funny it's the second time i'm repeating twelve thousand um, and so I had enough cash to fix my floors. And then, you know, because I was young, I had all these lavish dreams of, well, let's take the rest of the money and let's get like, replace my white appliances of stainless steel. Let's replace my laminate countertops with stone. You know, quartz was the new thing back then. And then, um, a friend of mine came over 
and referred me to a realtor who was doing a lot of house flips. And then he came by and was like, sure, fix your floors, but like take the rest of the money and invest in some investment property. I've got to deal with a builder. You're going to make some good money. It's an up and coming area called Queen West, which was the super sketchy part of downtown Toronto and um, re-gentrified now. But uh, yeah, I put that money into an investment property, told a bunch of friends about it, effectively sold eight units on his behalf. He just showed up with the purchase agreements and um, realized that I was going to make a lot more money selling real estate because that's effectively what I was doing. So let's just pause here for a minute while you're telling the story. So you sell these eight units on behalf of um, the the realtor, right? Mm-hmm. So is this your first taste of the direction you want to go into? And does this individual become a mentor or did you have a mentor? Like, how do you feel about mentorship? I mean, mentorship is very critical um, because you want someone who's doing what you want to be doing. And back then, I didn't realize that's what I wanted to be doing, but I was just having fun telling people, listen, I made some money off my first place. I paid out my student loan, got a second place, came into a little bit of cash, like, and I'm going to go reinvest it because I understood that real estate was a way to make money because I'd already made money on my first house that, you know, paid out Johnny Bonavolta. So um, knowing that I already had an inkling of like, you know what, putting money into that is the way to go. And so I could speak from a little bit of my own personal experience when I was de facto selling these units And, you know, he armed me with a little bit of information. He gave me an investment package that I was emailing out to people, helping them choose their layout, you know, so he, he mentored me and showing me why I should pick this layout over this one, how the deposit structure would work, how I was going to make money after a couple of years of renting it out, all of that. So I then basically imparted that same information. And uh, yeah, he was like, listen, I'm opening up a real estate brokerage. I think you should come quit that government job, come work at the brokerage and, you're going to make the same money in, you know, a month because you just did that for me. So there we have it. Cool. And I love that you kind of took that risk. Like it kind of sounds like you followed your heart. Like you stumbled upon something you didn't, you weren't looking for. Like you didn't even, you weren't looking for real estate. You kind of stumbled into it, took a chance, found out you liked it and then went with that. Yeah. And this is not like a follow your heart thing. Like there was a lot of um, strategic calculation in that. Like when I was looking at, okay, in two weeks with this investment package, I went and spent X number of hours talking to these people and effectively did sales, right? Um, That amount of money would have brought me, I think it was 80,000. That was a little bit more than I was making at the government. So I, I put thought into it. Okay. And what is it? What's how am I, how much work is it going to be to replace my day job income? And that's what I think a lot of people should do. And I have friends that I help out, you know, help help them out with this exact calculation is how much money are you going to need to replace your day job? If your day job makes you 50 grand a year, well, you're probably only taking home, you know, um, 35,000 after taxes, after pension, after all of the deductions that come off of a paycheck. So really how hard is it to replace that income? And for a lot of people working their nine to five, it's not going to take much. You're not trying to start out and make $5 million a year. You're just replace that income. And in doing so, you're going to, there's going to be so many other doors and ideas that open up. If you've got that creativeness, that entrepreneurial spirit, and I acknowledge not everybody has that, but I see more risk in staying at the nine to five because I know what that ceiling is. That ceiling is at the time for me, I was making 70,000 when I left. I had a pension that was going to bring me 4K a month. Eventually one day after a lot of gray hair, 
wrinkles, and most importantly, 30 years of my life in a cubicle. So there was nothing in there. There was nothing to give up. Like, honestly, it's like wanting to, like, are you debating leaving the boyfriend that doesn't treat you well? Like, why is this a conversation? Like, but you know what I noticed though? Like, it's, it's obvious. Like when you look at something and you do the math and you look at the numbers and you look at the facts, it's, it's obvious the direction that you need to go into. But for, but for some reason, there are common behaviors or, or, or traits or characteristics that people have that stop them from reaching their potential or going and taking that plunge. It, it's usually them. It's usually not external factors, but it's factors within the individual themselves that stops them. Fear, doubt. Like, what are some common? Like, after speaking with a lot of people, what are some common behaviors or traits that you notice from people that are stopping them from achieving the success that they could potentially reach for and achieve? So it's only one thing and it's fear. That's the only thing that I see. Um, And it's in everybody from, you know, artists. I actually have a makeup artist um, friend who (laughs) she makes $40,000 a year working uh, an admin job for, I can't, I don't know what type of a plumbing company, I think. Um, And she does not want to go into makeup full time. And I said, hold on, how, what do you bring home every week? And how many gigs do you need? And we worked it out and she needs four makeup gigs a week that will take four hours, five hours. That's all she needs to replace her income. So you just need to do five faces a week. That's it. If you even register with, she's a great makeup artist. If you register with any agency, anything, you're going to get five faces a week. Sometimes you show up on a Saturday for a production shoot and there's like eight faces to do. Like this is not rocket science here, Um, but she's so reluctant. Yeah, but this is safe and oh, I've been there for so long and they really love me. No, they, I, I mean, maybe they love you. Maybe they do, but you have to really think about yourself and what you're doing and you love doing makeup. Like that's more important than them having you sitting your ass down and doing this admin paperwork for their company. Like, so um, I think people don't really understand when you show them what's possible, people don't want to lose. They don't see what they can win on, but people have a fear of losing out on something. So when you say, don't, you don't say you could make 200,000 a year. You say you are losing $200,000 a year by staying at that job. So you think you're getting paid your 50 K or whatever you're getting paid at the job, but you're actually losing $200,000 a year. When you position it that way, it's makes taking that chance and taking that next step a lot harder because they have that fear of, not want to take the risk and going for it. But now they have the other fear of like, oh my God, I'm losing 200 grand by staying where I am, you know, and who knows sky's the limit after that. Right. So, um, so that is something that I think is very important. Something that I see in a lot of people, it's just, it's the fear of the unknown. And you, if you're going to run your own business, you have to be okay with the unknown variables and just have a plan for how you're going to make up for it. So maybe you save six months of income, to get you through that first run until the cash is flowing nicely, you know, plan out whatever that business, whatever the business model is, for example, with the makeup artist, you know what, I'm going to reach out to 20 agencies and nine other busy makeup artists and see if I can go and assist them for half their rate and help them with their 
business. Okay. I'm going to reach out to them. You start doing the outreach. Then what it comes to that, maybe you have five people who are actually interested. Yeah, no, we'd love for you to come and sign off on our, and work with our, our agency, or we'd love for you to come and be an assistant makeup artist to, you know, the big honcho makeup artist. And this is what we're going to pay you. And this is how many gigs we think you'll get a week and start doing it on weekends. And in the meantime, you saved up your angle. You have to make a plan. Don't just sit there and say, yeah, but you know, it doesn't, it seems really risky. I don't know. You know, like that is not what's going to get you where you need to be. And so I think um, you have to make a plan for the fear, vocalize what the fear is. That's really important because sometimes just getting it from inside your body outside is going to really help you get through that. Um, yeah, I had a lot of fear and, and that's exactly what I did. I had to vocalize it and plan for so it. So basically, so basically it's like, in a sense, a lot of people, when they decide they want to become entrepreneurs, they feel like, okay, it's unachievable because I don't have an idea to create a product, like a grandioso type of product, or I don't, or I'm not creative in like, I don't know, in whatever, like I'm as a makeup artist or a hairstylist or, so is it basically just, you know, you can look at it as whatever you, whatever your current skill sets are, or whatever your current job is pretty much taking that and making it into becoming self-employable or like, how does it work? I mean, so I think like you, say, for example, I'm an HR specialist. What would you do in this case? Do you just take and say, well, you have skills in HR, take that and work for small to mid-sized companies and outsource and become like an HR consultant? Like, or do you have to create some kind of product or serve like, or some grand service? How does that work? Well, it depends. So one, do you actually like doing HR or is this just what you're doing? Because it seemed like a good idea at the time you took the course. No, I mean, I like it. I like it. I think it's such, it's a broad, it's a broad industry. There's so many things in HR that you can work with. You can do policy development, you can do payroll, you can be advisors, you can do, you know what I mean? There's a whole bunch, you can do health and safety. There's a whole bunch of avenues in HR under the umbrella. Okay. So if you're really passionate about HR, one idea, um, and we just recruited for um, some, we, we just worked with two headhunters actually for different um, positions in the development company. So I'm fresh off of this um, recruitment uh, trail. So these recruitment companies charge anywhere from 10 to 30% of the annual salary of the position they're recruiting for. So for example, if we're hiring a social media specialist and that person's gonna make 90K a year, we're going to pay them any anywhere from $9,000 to $27,000 to find us the right candidate. These people went out, they interviewed and, you know, looked at the resumes of probably 60 people. We interviewed three and hired one. And this was over the last three weeks. So inside of three weeks, they're going to get a commission for this person. Now, when you do start running the numbers, even on the low end of 10%, because some, you know, junior firms and junior recruitment specialists will charge 10%, um, and then the more senior, bigger companies will charge more. But that's nine grand in three weeks where honestly, I don't know how many hours a week they put in. I'm just going to say, let's say they put in 40 hours for that one to find us that one candidate. That's what that is. When you divide that out, and look at whatever business costs, all, all these jobs now are virtual. So there's not even any office overhead. You may need an assistant. Um, but apart from that, like when you start looking at that and you can do six or seven of those in a month, probably. So then you start looking at, okay, I could potentially be bringing in, throw out a random number, $200,000 a year if I went in on my own, you know, and then start 
preparing and planning and, and doing outreach and looking at what areas you want to um, cater to. Some people are great for hiring, you know, digital marketing specialists or that, that whole industry. Some people are great with like, you know, hiring an architect. Some people are really fantastic at, you know, we're going to hire talent for, I don't know, uh, hair, hair salons or anything, you know? So um, you have to look at what, if there's, if you're going to specialize in an industry, but just really start thinking of as an entrepreneur, taking my same skill set that I love and that I'm very passionate about, how can I earn more and then own my time? And then you start building out what that'll look like over the next five years. A lot of good takeaways. A lot of good takeaways. I hope the listeners are taking notes. This is like a little course. This is like, a, this is like gold. Like we just um, gave you a free pot of gold. Yeah. So um, now that you've kind of designed your own life, designed your own career, you're working for yourself, absolutely no one to answer to but yourself. Um, can you just kind of let us know what a typical day looks like um, and kind of what still those challenges are working for yourself um, and if there's any pressures? And then also, do you ever get moments where you're like, or have had moments where you're like, I'm going to throw it all in, like this is exhausting and anything like that? Okay, so I'll start backwards because my memory is short. Um, yeah, no, so I, now that you I don't you have moments yourself, throwing it all in. Challenges? Yeah, I don't have moments of throwing it all in. <laughs> um, <laughs> absolutely. Throwing it all in and like going back and tidying up my resume for the government again? No. No, just like on your journey, um, did you just ever have moments where you kind of re-questioned or? I think my biggest challenge is, so one, I left government and went straight into real estate. The thing is going into a commission-based job industry is that I didn't plan and save enough cash because even if I had 20 clients on day one, by the time they go through the buy cycle or the sell cycle and the deals close, because real estate agents don't get paid until deals close. Um, and so I started off selling real estate and I didn't have enough cash pipeline to cover my expenses for those first few months. And I think a lot of realtors go through that in the beginning. Um, so I, 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 that was certainly a challenge in the beginning. Um, then I would say by year four or five, I started buying more investment properties and I started getting into home renovation. So I did my first renovation on my own house um, and ran, you know, a crew and project managed the whole thing front to back. Um, that was my first taste of the construction side of things. I, it was okay. It was all right. Um, you know, I had some challenges. I think that anyone, whether you're a homeowner or working in the, in the industry would have in dealing with trades and timings and delays and all of that. Um, I then went into a little bit deeper and then I, I was buying investment properties and then how I got into actual development was I took a little joyride down to Niagara Falls with um, two guys who later became my business partners. And we just, they were just going out to check out land. They had been selling real estate. They had done a lot of custom home builds. They had built a retirement home and they were like, you know what, let's start looking into development. Cause when I was selling real estate, I was selling mostly investment properties for builders. And effectively what you're doing is you're just raising capital for builders. You're getting people to put money into the builder's project and, and buy units pre-construction. And so I had this big network of clients and I thought, you know, we all kind of thought, okay, well, let's now go to the next level and be the developers. And so I went on this joy ride down to Niagara Falls just purely for learning, but also knowing that if an opportunity came up and because I was, you know, the one along for the ride from the beginning, I would probably get 
in on the opportunity. And that's something that I think a lot of people should really take seriously. Look at people who are where you want to be and look at what they're doing and how can you be prepared for an opportunity that might come up. And so because I had some investment properties, an opportunity came up to invest a little bit of capital and learn about development. And that's effectively what I did. And I don't think that opportunity would have come up at that time if I hadn't gone along for the ride just for learning. And I remember my mom saying, because I asked her to come over and watch the kids so I could go to Niagara Falls for the day. And she was like, why are you going to go for free? People should be paying you if you want to like, if they want you to like work with them and like get your time and da, da, da. And I was like, no, mom, like if there's an opportunity, I'm going to get in on it because I was in from the beginning. I don't know. They should be paying you, blah, 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 whatever, mom. So, but it worked out exactly that way. And so, you know, now I think they're on to, so we partnered up on one site. They went on to do seven other development sites. Then a steel came across their desk that was too small for them. And then through their encouragement and mentorship, they said, listen, why don't you take this one and do this project on your own? And so that's my first project, the Boho. It's 27 units. We sold it out in a month. Um, and we're going to start construction this spring. So, what this really is, is being prepared for when opportunities come along, finding people that are where you want to be and learning from them. And I know a lot of companies do mentorship opportunities now, interning opportunities, but just really focus on who those people are and how you can best learn from them. And in some cases, that's, you know, webinars. In some cases, um, you know, I think Grant Cardone, who's like a mega real estate billionaire, he's got like a mentorship program where you pay money, like university tuition, and they, him and his team, they guide you along the way of if you're looking to become a, a you know, a multifamily um, investor or even whatever your business is, there are at least 20 companies, I don't care what industry you're in, that are active online mm-hmm. that will offer you mentorship, um, even if it's paid. Um, and I wouldn't ignore opportunities just because they're paid opportunities, because at the end of the day, we're all, you know, most of us have been to college and university and don't have shit much to show for it. Be quite honest. After we leave there, we're going to work jobs. So I I think that practical um, application of knowledge is just so much more effective and learn from the people that are actually doing it, not from people who, you know, act like they're doing like people that are actually doing it. So if you want to get into real estate, you want to become a real estate agent, go find the top five real estate agents and go and work with them for free you know, learn from them for free. And that that's something that's really important that I think people should um, be doing for whatever industry you're in. That's a great, that's actually a great takeaway. Just being open to opportunities. I find sometimes people just have a linear way of making a plan and like they're afraid to kind of veer off, mm-hmm. um, off of that plan and take those opportunities. And um, yeah, I think there's a lot of great resources out there as well that people can utilize, um, especially with YouTube these days and Clubhouse. Um, there's just so many channels to kind of absorb a lot of information. So I think that kind of answers a little bit of the last question on, you know, now that it's COVID going on and the pandemic has affected a lot of businesses, how has it uh, affected yours? Um. I think it's the pandemic has had a positive impact to be quite honest, um, silver lining. And I know it's the pandemic is, is very challenging um, for so many people. I always try to look at, you know, opportunities that have come out of a very 
generally terrible situation. Um, what I have found is that through the pandemic, people have really been looking at alternative ways to earn money, um, ways to increase their net worth. And I think we've had a lot of people who may not have looked at real estate investment or who have not thought it was possible for them actually consider it. Um, and I think this is because of the pandemic. I think it's in part because one, people have suffered a loss of income and they're like, okay, how can I prevent this from happening again? How can I not rely solely on my nine to five job to sustain me? And I think secondly, it's that literally for the last year, everyone has just been staring at their phones. And so we have an opportunity to market something and we have um, people's attention that we should be captivating that we may not have had um, otherwise. So those are two certainly takeaways that I think have impacted my business um, in a positive way throughout this, this pandemic. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's what I would say to that. Um, and then the most pressing question of them all, we want to know why you want to detach from the label of boss babe. So we know it's like an the over huge hashtag that's going around. saturated term. Um, and I think it's interesting kind of how you don't want to identify under that, under that umbrella. Do you want to kind of give us a, a synopsis on why? Yes. Okay. So boss, babe and girl boss. Okay. Um, for many women like me who are entrepreneurs who happen to be women, there is nothing girly or baby about what I'm doing. And I think I can speak for many women, CEOs of big corporations, maybe they're managing million dollar budgets. There's nothing girly about this. We are grown women. We are running companies and businesses dealing with the same things that other business owners run by. Why diminish all of that by calling me a babe or calling me a girl? You know, when you think of girl boss, it, it immediately puts the visual in your mind of a child. I'm not doing anything that's childlike, mm -hmm. you know, um, nothing about the business itself needs me to be almost sexualized or focused on my looks because I'm a babe. What is a babe? A babe is a hot girl. A babe is a girl who's attractive and looks good. Maybe she's got, you know, blush cheeks and glossy lips and nice full round boobs and a nice heart shaped bum. That's not, it's nothing to do with the company and what we're doing. <laughs> it's nothing to do with profitability, with budgeting, with sales I'd and like marketing. I'd like to be a boss, babe, if that's the description. I wanted to add to that, that I think the term came from, it's almost like, um, I don't know the word, maybe my sister will help, but I think it's like you're trying to prove like, oh, I'm a woman. I can do it, too. So it's like because back in the day, right, like everybody who led big companies were men. Men were the workers. Even back in the day, women were housewives. So it's like you got to reclaim your status like, oh, yes. And I'm a female entrepreneur I think, I think instead exactly of just what it is. being yeah. a female who's also an entrepreneur. It's like you have to prove to the world that you can do it, even though you have a vagina. Like you made it despite the um, yeah. perceived obstacles of being a woman. Yeah. But I'm, I'm going to say 90% of what I'm doing has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a woman. Like there's, right. I, I get, I get it. Yeah. It has nothing to do with anything. And when you use that term and I'm going to quote somebody, uh, Magdalena Zawisa, she said, well, girl boss immediately draws attention to the feminine it infantilizes the role of a female as a boss. It brings me down. It's diminutive. It diminishes 
everything else I'm doing because you've just put the word girl or babe in there. And that is something that I think if I'm a woman and I'm working in a space and a male dominated space, I don't need this to be highlighted. (laughs) I'm doing a job. People are reporting into me. You know, I'm working with a whole team. Me being a woman doesn't have much at all to do with this. And yes, she's, you know, (laughs) Pam's on the zoom right now, highlighting that um, she's a part of a sweater (laughs) that says babes club. And I remember her trying to, you two are like the complete opposite. Sell these sweaters to me. And you know what? Most of her clients are women and she's in a, a hair beauty industry. It may be a bit different there, but as a general term, and there's some huge, huge companies with females as CEOs, it, it does a disservice by using the term babe or girl. There's nothing girly cutesy. It's honestly, it's very cringeworthy, actually. Like every time I hear it or see the hashtag. And I understand that to some degree, I think women want to form this camaraderie, but I don't find that term empowering at all. I find it quite diminishing, to be honest. Imagine. So you're not a, you're not a female real estate developer. You're just a real estate developer. She's just developer. She's just developer. We don't need to go into the, you know, these days where we have to open bracket. He, she, her, she's a vagin. She's a, she, a, an entrepreneur with a vagina. She's Nobody just developer. But the vagina has nothing to do with the job. <laughs> vagina is power, Priscilla. only in certain areas uh imagine they had hashtag boss hunk (laughs) no okay dadpreneur where where are we seeing this (laughs) mommypreneur (laughs) again if you sell baby products this might be helpful that's the industry you're in but for the vast majority of women working in high positions they these women do not want to be called girl boss at all it's very um it's childlike, okay. you know, that's, it's that's juvenile. what I feel. Yeah. Very juvenile. Very juvenile. Very juvenile. All right. Well, you know what? Thank you for that clarification. We definitely needed that. And to everybody that's using that word boss, babe, um, get rid of it, get rid of it. Cause you're doing yourself a disservice <laughs> or follow build up development co. And, um, <laughs> Priscilla will reiterate again, why you're not a boss, babe, and why you shouldn't be a boss, babe, be a babe to your partner. And just be a boss at work. And we can just, we need to separate those two. Oh my right. God. A boss in the street. I'm going to make a, a sweater that, sheets. yeah, I'm going to make a sweater. Babe to your man, boss at your work. Hey, hashtag. Okay, make it yeah. rhyme though. Whatever. <laughs> um, I just wanted to add to that too, that um, going back to when she talked about the fear, there was this one time, I think we talked about it or it's coming up in another episode where um, I got that call that I had to come out my dad's basement. You guys remember that call when I was doing hair in the basement? Don't act like you don't remember that call. Okay, hair in the dungeon. For context, Pam, before Pam got a salon, she was doing hair for at least 10 years <laughs> out of our parents' basement at Jane and Eglinton. And clients would come walk through the house, then go down the stairs to the salon. <laughs> And and Gran would be Gran would be the uh, receptionist. receptionist. She would receive yes. people and Grandma Brown. Okay, Grandma so. Brown, the reader. What so. pushed you out of the basement finally? Like, if you weren't forced to leave the basement, were you comfortably going to marinate in there for years to come? Yeah, I was. We were going to build a door from outside because you know Errol was always building a door, a wall. So we we're going to build a door, a separate entrance, and just have them come through there. 
But uh, yeah, then I got the call and he gave me a couple months thinking that was a long time. I had like a 10 minute panic. And then my sister put me in my place and said, I think this is great. You can like build. Did you expect to be there forever? And I said, yeah. And then I did it. And so it shows that like there is fear, but when you don't have any other choice, you just do things. And now look, I never wanted to be a salon owner, like never. And now we're actually sitting in the salon recording this podcast. It's actually been used for many things in the pandemic, people's office, photo shoots. Non-boss babes who want to escape from home and work (laughs) away from their children. (laughs) Yeah. Can you make Prissy a sweater where it's like boss babe, but then a big X over it? Yeah, I'm going to actually. That'd be a good custom make that. That'd be a good one. But let's get back to first. Okay, what made you want to go into the hair industry? Like what? I remember back in the days in high school, you were like the go-to person in the cafeteria. If you needed some cornrows, if you needed some braids and twists at the front of the hair. Ain't nobody doing braids now. But yeah, but then it's like something inside of you had to have loved hair because it started all the way from there. Like, so what got you into doing hair in the first place? Well, um, when you're biracial and your mom gives you mullets, it doesn't work out. And then I moved to Mississauga. I grew up in predominantly white school where the hair was just crazy. Talk about that in another episode. And then when I went to a school where all of a sudden the black girls wanted to hang with me that actually existed in the school, they took me to a hair salon and told them to give me a bob. And when I left, my hair was to my chin. And when I washed it, it was to my nose. And I had to learn how to deal with it. So I learned about weave, extensions, braids, whatever it was. And then I just ended up to keep on going with like doing other people's hair. Then I got really into it. I took it in high school when I realized it was offered cosmetology. And then it just kept going. And then here we are. It's almost like a matter of survival. You were forced to know how to do hair in order to... In order to uh, survive in the streets with literally no mullet, the streets, no bang shrinkage. This was a matter of survival for you, Pam. What did mom used to tell people when she got my haircut? Party in the something, party in the back, party in the front. She'd say party in the back, office in the front. (laughs) This is really. I'm not sure. I have few memories of childhood. (laughs) Party in the back office in the front (laughs) yeah which literally meant like short in the in the front and long in the back yeah i didn't get a mullet so i don't know what that statement was about if you stop by if you stop by um whenever you stop by for your for your hair to get done at elevate just take a look at that retro photo of um mom and daughter (laughs) i have the mullet in that photo the The mullet lives the mullet it's like you don't how come you you don't even want to let go of the mullet though that's the thing the steve urkel show though someone had the mullet in that show, and it was a very common hairstyle back then. Mullets are the brother, easy. Bon Jovi. Um, they all had the mullet. Have ethnicity, be black, and have a mullet. It doesn't work. No, the Jerry Curl. So many of them had the mullet. Jerry Curl. Yeah, the but Jerry mine Curl wasn't mullet. Even a Jerry Curl. It was a fluff. Like I just had fuzzy hair. It wasn't even curly. It was just fuzz. I mean, the mullet's not for everyone, but um, uh, so. Uh, you've mentioned in the past too, just kind of uh, comments people have made to you in the past, and like there being a stigma around being a hairstylist. I think you said once someone told you 
it's not an actual career path or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some of the stigmas with the career that you're in and what are some of the, um, the comments people have made to you? I think now being a stylist is cool because like people see that the amount of money you could make extension work, set work that I don't like doing. Um, but back then, if you were like a, it was called a hairdresser. So you were a hairdresser and it was like, you sat and cut people's hair all day and made like 20 bucks. And it just seemed like, yeah, it just seemed like, like a bottom low grade job. Um, and you worked at like first choice there wasn't a way like people wouldn't think outside the box, going to people's house, whatever. It was just like, you go to the salon, you cut hair all day, you go home and you had bad hours. And it's almost like back in the day, they were only trained to know how to cut and style a certain type and texture of hair. Like if you didn't fit that type and texture of hair at first choice, you're screwed, man. That is darn true. Like I'll never forget. I'll never forget. I asked for bleached hair. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god! And, and that, as it was being bleached, and as she was rinsing it out in the sink, it started to fall out in the sink. It yeah, started, like wow. when I when I took hair school, you had to pay extra, and it was called Black Cosmetology. The book was called Black Cosmetology, Unbelievable. and it was an extra fee because black hair is from an alien place, right? So you have to pay extra. It's not just hair; it's an extra course. But why? Like, imagine you're black and you take hair school, but you have to pay extra on top of the $10,000 to learn black hair, but you can learn perming, which I've never really done. And you can learn, I don't know, bleaching, whatever, but you just can't learn black hair, even black barbering. It's extra. So like in those days, right, when you're learning how to do hair and you're going into this uh, field, was there any mentors that you could look at? Like, do you remember any mentors from back in those days that you could reference and use as a guide for, you know, people with biracial hair, black hair? Like how was the industry back then? Nope. There was nobody. Just me. Just you. So you kind of just, you just rolled with the punches and taught yourself. Yep. Pretty much. I just fucked up a lot of heads and learned. (laughs) Like There was nobody to teach me. Yeah, I think my I, hair was many different shades in my twenties. Yeah, I just there was Jade, nobody. It's cuts, weaves. I got a lot of weaves sewn into my head. I never brushed for weeks at a time. Yeah, yeah. Just, there was nobody. Just, just there was nobody to day. teach me. Nobody. Who were like? Who were some of? Who was your mentor? I know you had one. Shout out to shout out to Miss Ryan. Yeah, Miss Ryan, like as a teacher and as that. Yes. Sorry. I have to mention her. She was totally a mentor. She always pushed me to do more. She pushed me even to try teaching hair. She would kick me out of class. Tell She actually literally would give me five dollars to sit in the calf because she said, I'm going to show out the other kids and they're going to feel bad because I'm too good. And she literally would give me money to skip class. Like literally. That's amazing. Yeah. She was cool. Yeah. I remember taking her class. I literally burned the mannequin's head. <laughs> yeah. It's people think they can do hair, but from learning by it's a bar, like you have it or you don't. Yeah. Yeah. You got to just have it or you don't. Yeah. So um, now how has the pandemic affected your business? What have you done to, to stay, to stay afloat, to stay lucrative? What are some things that you've had to change? I mean, there is, we have curbside pickup. We're selling products. Um, 
you know, the clients have been amazing, supportive. I've got a lot of offers to do backdoor hair visits that I have declined. Um, But, you know, I have to say that the pandemic has actually taught me to really respect my time. Uh, It's taught me that there's just certain things I won't do anymore. Uh, If a client just rubs me the wrong way or like I just feel like our vibe energy is off, I'm not going to do it because my time is precious. And I've had to learn that sometimes with too many lessons. Um, But the clients that are, are there, my ride or dies, I love them. They're so supportive. They check on me. They call me. They bring me food. Um, they just do so much. They're like family. And, um, I know when we reopen, I will make what I lost and then some, so I don't see this as a loss. I just see this as time for me to reconnect with myself and reopen with a bang. Amazing. So, um, there's just, this conversation could literally go on for hours. Um, we are going to wrap it up. Denise is piecing out back to her cubicle life. Um, and we want to thank everyone for their time. It's okay, time. y'all. You know Priscilla what? I got to piece out to the, yep. I got to piece out founder, back to the cubicle life. Build up development company. Follow, build share, up development like. co. co. <laughs> Follow, share, I like. know it's co, but like. Okay, fine. Um, um, check it out, reach out. Um, and I just, I really want to encourage everyone again today, um, take notes from today's segment. I just, even for myself, there's just so many gems to kind of take away and open your eyes from. And we really appreciate women like you, um, and Pam, like yourself who kind of take that step out there, take control of your life, take chances, um, push fear to the back door and it kind of gives us other women something to look up to and to aspire to and, and gives us a lot of encouragement and, and optimism so thank you for that any um, any final words or? and yeah and just before we go to just want to tell people like if you are in a cubicle and that's your thing we are totally not giving you any like you know what's the word like we're not showing any disrespect we're not throwing anything we're just saying There are also other ways like, you know, Denise is in her cubicle, but she's also flipping that real estate on the side. Danielle is going to join that club soon enough one day. But um, yeah, it's just to open your eyes and look outside of the box and just see that life doesn't have to be one way. But if you have any other questions, as you know, you can reach out to us on at your therapy on Instagram. Any investment questions, you can also reach out to Priscilla at the uh, at buildup co on Instagram. Um, and we will share that in this podcast, but build up we, development uh, co yeah. Build up development. You know, we're just butchering this right now, but uh, <laughs> we just uh, once, again, <laughs> once again, thank you guys so much for listening and we will catch you again next week with another episode with somebody else in the hot seat. Bye. Have Bye guys. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Hot Seat, a sheer therapy podcast. We hope you enjoyed yourself and can't wait to be with you again next week. If you've taken anything away from this today, it's to live, love, forgive, have faith, and always have a glass of wine and your girls. We can't wait to be with you all again next week. See you soon.